In the book of Romans, we've covered the first seven chapters of Romans, so if you'll turn to chapter 8, we'll begin at verse 1. If you need a Bible, Jerry has some in his hand in the back, and he'll be happy to hand you a Bible. We have some towards the front platform. You can grab one. Turn to the book of Romans in chapter 8. We'll begin reading, as I said, in verse 1. As Paul is writing to the Christians in Rome, what we know as the book of Romans, he has been declaring to us this wonderful grace of God in this letter. He has declared to us that our salvation that is being declared uh, justified and righteous before God is given to us freely. We cannot earn it. We cannot work for it. It's freely by his grace. That word grace means, of course, the unmerited favor of God through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And as we've been looking at this doctrine of justification from uh, the, the end of chapter 3 through chapter 5, uh, we know that we also have been looking at uh, once we are justified, that chapter 6 began this doctrine of sanctification. And what that word means is being set apart to live a life after God, to walk with him, to live for him. And the apostle would cry out, inspired by God, of course, that where sin abounds, grace abounds much more there at the end of chapter 5. And so the reader, or perhaps uh, someone might think that, well, where sin abounds, grace abounds more in this incredible doctrine of grace, the unmerited favor of God, does that mean I can live any way that I want? And that's why Paul is making sure in chapter 6 through 8 that we understand what it means to live in this newness of life, what it means to, to live for the Lord in this whole process called sanctification, being set aside for him. And what we have discovered and what we have discussed as we looked at chapter 6, that first of all, that we are dead to sin. We identify with Christ and his death and resurrection. The old man, the old woman has been crucified with Christ. And now we indeed walk in that newness of life. So Paul tells us that first of all, we're dead to sin. He writes at the beginning of chapter 6, should we continue in sin that grace abounds? He said, certainly not. Because we are dead to sin. We are new creatures in Christ, a new creation in Christ. And we're dead to the old sinful way that we lived before we came to Christ. And then over the last couple of weeks, we have discovered, traveling through chapter 7, that not only are we dead to sin, that's chapter 6, but chapter 7 tells us that we're dead to the law. And as we're dead to the law, it's not so that we, again, can go out and live any way that we want to in a carnal kind of way, but we are dead to the law so that we are free to be joined to another, and that is Jesus Christ. So Paul has shared with us in that chapter, chapter 7, his own personal struggle with trying to keep the law, in his own efforts, his own energies, his, his own doings. He speaks of the warring that goes on between the inner man uh, who wants to do what is right and the flesh that wants to rebel. And I think that most of us, if not all of us, that we could relate to what Paul was describing to us there in chapter 7. The frustration, the uh, wanting to do what is right. I, I want to keep the law. The law is good. We know that. The law is righteous. It's holy. It's perfect. But I can't keep it because I'm weak. The flesh is weak. And as we read in chapter 7, the apostle would write, For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. It was Jesus that said to his disciples that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
And I think that where we can relate to Paul is we as Christians, we say, okay, I have been justified. I've come to Jesus Christ in faith, that I have the Spirit of God that lives in me. I have been sanctified, set apart to live for the Lord. We do want Christ-likeness in our lives. And we say, Lord, I give you my life. And what we end up doing, though, is we end up rolling up our sleeves and we grit our teeth and we are determined and we're going to tough it out and I'm going to give you my best effort, Lord. And here's the problem. I don't care who you are. If you are Paul the Apostle, if any of us are trying to be Christ-like, if we are trying to keep the law, that is, I am married to the law, I am determined. Uh, I don't care how determined you are. And we saw that the writer in chapter 7 last week, he was very determined. And if any of us are trying in our own efforts, in our own striving, in our own energy to live the life that God wants us to, we will be destined to end up in the same place and the same mess that Paul describes in chapter 7. And that is with struggling with frustration. And so we saw last time that the law sets a wonderful standard on how we are to live a life after God. The weakness of the law is simply this. It doesn't provide the power for us so that we can keep the standard, so we can live Christ-like. It doesn't do that. So if we try to keep and live the law of Moses or any religious law or set of standards as determined as we can be, if we try to do it in our own power, and that was the emphasis of chapter 7, that law, that set of standards will rise up and it will bite us and eventually mock us and begin to condemn us because we struggle and we fail to keep that standard. And so Paul tells us that we're free from sin and we are free from the law, free not so that we can go out and do whatever it is that we want to walk carnally, but we are free to be joined to another Jesus Christ who then will enable us to walk in that newness of life that he has for us as we walk in the spirit, walk in Christ likeness. And that is what chapter 8 is all about as we go through this chapter, Paul in this chapter contrasting walking and living in the spirit with that of walking and living in the flesh. So let's begin to look at it as we read in Romans chapter 8 in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So here's the good news. There is therefore now... Underline that word now. Because that means for you who are a believer, that means for you who are in Christ, that means this morning, that means today. For you who are born again by the Spirit of God. Now there's only one kind of Christian, and that is those who are born again by the Spirit of God. And the reason I mention that, because I read a survey not long ago, and these surveys kind of drive me crazy. But they were surveying Christians, supposedly. And of those Christians, 60% say that they're born-again Christians. And I think that you can't be a Christian unless you're born again, right? So we read in verse 9, let me read it to you, that, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. Of course, Jesus would say to Nicodemus in John 
chapter 3, that if you want to see the kingdom of God, Nicodemus, you must be born again. So here, as we read this, we who are in Christ, we who are born again by the Spirit of God, believers in Jesus Christ, if you are here, and I know a vast majority that we are believers, there is therefore now, that means today, no condemnation. And that word condemnation is used only three times in the New Testament, is used here in, in verse 1 of chapter 8, and we read it twice in chapter 5 in verse 16 and 18 of the book of Romans. And what it means is, it means to judge down. It's talking about eternal judgment, the sentence of condemnation being executed. And there is now today no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It does not say that there is now no failings or shortcomings or we will never sin again. But we are in Christ Jesus. And there is no condemnation. And we're not going to stand before the great white throne judgment of Christ and be condemned. And that is the truth of God's word to every single one of us as believers. The condemnation that should have been ours was dealt with with the cross as Jesus took the condemnation and the judgment that should have been for you and for me he took it on Calvary's cross for us and now we're in Christ as believers I think that's one of Paul's favorite sayings in the book of Ephesians you read that we're in Christ and I think a good illustration of that is in the book of Genesis you remember Noah that after he finished the ark that they went into the ark and it says that God closed the door of the ark and sealed them in the ark and they were able to escape the judgment well you and I are able to escape the judgment eternal damnation and condemnation because we are in Christ Christ is in us. We are believers. And he took that judgment for you and for me, that condemnation. And there are many Christians that will live their lives in constant condemnation. Because they haven't made this verse, verse 1, real in their hearts. Paul said, therefore, in light of what I just declared, I've tried and I've tried to do what is right, but I fail and struggle. And so you see, Paul, bring it all, the frustration and the condemnation, if you were with us last week, to a climax in verse 24 of chapter 7, as he cries out, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And when we come to that place, and we need to come to that place, where we realize that I cannot live a holy life in and of myself, that wretched man that I am, it's a place of surrender. It's a place of dying to self. It is a place of yielding to the Lord. It is a place of humility. Oh, wretched man, wretched woman that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Not what, but who? And it's the Lord. And Paul would answer it, well, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul, in that struggle between the inner man and the flesh, which we can relate to, where we can fail and we feel condemned and we come to that place of wretched man that I am, that we turn to Jesus Christ. And Paul states here that there's a way out of chapter 7. There's a way out of living in defeat and frustration and condemnation. So Paul starts out by giving us this wonderful declaration that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So Paul is bringing us now to a place of confidence and peace after the confusion and struggle and conflict that marked Romans chapter 7. And we're going to see that as Romans here begins with there's no condemnation, 
It will end with there's no separation. And in between, we have the spirit of adoption where we can cry out, Abba, Father. And that is why chapter 8 is one of the most glorious and wonderful chapters in all of the scriptures. And so as being ones that are in Christ Jesus, we are ones that don't walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, as we read in verse 1. Now, just a little side note. There are some scholars that believe that the last part of verse 1 doesn't belong there because it wasn't found in the earliest manuscripts of the book of Romans. And that is who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now, if it does belong there, does it change what Paul is declaring? Absolutely not. Listen. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, period. And now that we're in Christ Jesus, we walk in the spirit, not after the flesh. And as we see that Paul will begin to tell us the contrast between life in the spirit and life in the flesh. Let's continue in verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. So verse 1 talks about being free from the guilt of sin, the condemnation of sin. Verse 2 speaks here of being free from the power of sin. You see, the law is good. That's already been established several times in the book of Romans. It can do many things for us. It teaches us. It guides us. It tells us about God's righteous standard. But it cannot and it does not give us the power to live a life that is pleasing to God. So Paul talks about two laws. The law of the spirit and the law of sin and death. And we have seen that we've all sinned in this book. That's chapters 1, 2, and 3. That all the world stands guilty before God. That the wages of sin is death, as we saw at the end of chapter 6. And we see that the strength of sin is, you know, reminded to us every time that we pass by a cemetery. That we're all going to die. Death came into the world. We're going to die physically, that is. And as Romans chapter 5, by way of review, remember that through Adam's sin, that sin and death came into the world. But through the last Adam, Jesus Christ, he brings us everlasting life. The law of the Spirit brings life. Now, you and I, we can go to the Greeley Airport. And as you go there, you drive up, you see the planes that are on the tarmac, the planes that are sitting there. And they're sitting there because you have the law of gravity that is in place. But if the pilot goes out to the plane, fires it up, you know, gets the engines going, goes down the runway, you know, at a certain speed and the, you know, uh, wings that the flaps are at a certain angle, all of this, all of a sudden the law of aerodynamics takes place and that plane defies gravity and begins to fly high. Romans here declaring to us that we are free from the law of sin and death. How? Is it by being positive? Is it by being tough spiritually? Is it by being determined? Is it by being the champion in you? No, it isn't any of that. We are free by the Spirit of Jesus Christ because He lives in our hearts. And we're not condemned. And He gives us the power to fly high and overcome the law of sin and death. In the book of Joshua, many of you have read that book. And the people of God came into the promised land. And the Canaanites gathered together, all the different kings and tribes of the Canaanites. And they banded together to fight against the Lord and God's people. And in our lives, the enemy will band together, come together to work against us in our lives. And the law of sin and death is comprised of three forces working in conjunction with each other, there is, of course, the enemy, Satan, number one, trying to pull you down, 
trying to deceive you, trying to destroy you. There's the world, and then there's thirdly the flesh. All three of those things working against us, pulling on us, trying to make us crash spiritually instead of soaring in the Lord. But it is the spirit which builds me up, a more powerful force at work in my life. The law of the spirit through Jesus Christ. And I live and I am free, Christ in me. There is no condemnation. And now there is liberation because Christ is in me. I'm living a newness of life. I'm walking in the spirit. And that's what's going to be explained to us as we continue. You see, when Christians or churches, they have the mindset that we have to keep people under guilt. We have to keep them under condemnation, under the law. And the fear is, unless we or others are kept under the law, you build a legalistic system to live by. And if we don't do that, then people, a church is going to become lawless. And all of you are going to be a bunch of, you know, wild-eyed, crazed sinners is what's going to happen. No regard to holiness. And that kind of thinking actually bypasses what Romans chapter 8, verse 2 declares, and it ignores the fact that when we were born again, God came into our lives and brought a living law into our lives. We're not lawless. It is a higher law. It is a law of love. It is the law of the Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit came into my life. He enables me. He empowers me to live in holiness. He gives me the desire to do that. It is God that works in us both the will and to do of his good pleasures is what Philippians tells us. He has a higher standard than the law of Moses because he brings to me the standard of Christ's likeness. It's a living law, the law of the Spirit and the prompting of the Spirit working in my life, frees me from the law of sin and death. So how does it work? You know how it works. You go to your job this week, and all of a sudden in the break or at the lunch you know, hour, everybody's in there eating lunch, and somebody starts gossiping about somebody or trashing the boss or saying crude things and crude jokes. And you know that the Spirit of God begins to speak to your heart. Hey, I'm not going to get involved in that gossip. I'm not going to talk about that person. I'm not going to trash the boss. I'm not going to yuck it up with everybody and their crude jokes or whatever it might be. Maybe perhaps at after work or guys, you know, the guys say, hey, let's stop and let's have some beers, you know, at this place and bar and have a little a good time and, and, and all of that. And your heart is saying, I can't go in there. It's too much of a temptation. It's not a good place for me to be. That is the law of the Spirit working in you. The Lord speaking in that still small voice. The Word of God guiding you in your heart. And what you do and where you go and what you lay your eyes on, what you're going to listen to, your conduct, your behavior, your speech, your, your, your purity, all of that. The law of the Spirit is at work in our lives. And it's wonderful when we allow the Lord to do that, to reign supreme in our hearts. But we continue in verse 3, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So in the previous chapter, it was told to us that the law cannot defeat sin. What it does is it points sin out. It detects sin. Because our flesh is weak. 
So God, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, Jesus comes and he defeats sin. By identifying with us who are bound by it, coming in the likeness of sinful flesh, not being sinful flesh. Remember that he was without sin. And so Paul writes here in verse 4 that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, not by us, but in us. The law is fulfilled in us. How? Through Jesus Christ. His death on the cross, his resurrection by his spirit, working holiness in our lives, guiding us and leading us, correcting us, enabling us to be obedient in the life after him. The Holy Spirit teaching us, empowering us, not the flesh, not our own energy. So the Father sending the Son, Jesus, because he became our substitute as he hung on Calvary's cross. And the one who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Of course, that's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. And back to Romans chapter 8, we read in verse 5, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So as Paul is telling us of this wonderful life in the Spirit, follow the flow of what he's been telling us in this chapter so far in these few verses. There's now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise God. We live in the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. We don't walk in the flesh. We saw in chapter 7, we read that in our flesh, nothing good dwells. We don't set our minds on the things of the flesh. Because to be carnally minded, fleshly minded, we read in verse 6, is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Now, as we read this in the context, Bible scholars and commentators will tell you what Paul's talking about here in these verses is talking about the non-believer who's walking uh, after the carnal ways, walking carnally after the flesh and, and, and versus the one who's a believer that walks in the spirit. I have no problem with that. He says to be carnally minded is death, verse 6. Uh, because, verse 7, the carnal mind is at enmity against God. Verse 8, so then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We know that verse 9, I've already read it to you, that if you don't have the spirit of Christ, you don't belong to him. You're not his. So I have no problem with the primary context here of his speaking about somebody who isn't saved versus somebody who is saved that has the spirit of God in them and is walking after the spirit. But there is, listen, application to be made for you and for me, as I know that a vast majority of us that are here and listening to this teaching that we are believers. There's something here for us to consider this morning. Because you recall in chapter 7, as Paul would write, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm carnal, sold under sin. And when he was writing to the Corinthian church, he would call them carnal. He said, listen, I can't write to you as to spiritual, as to mature Christians, but as to carnal babes in Christ. He calls them brethren. He calls them babes in Christ. And you have envies, you have jealousies, you have divisions. He is dealing with their spiritual immaturity, but he calls them carnal. He says, aren't you carnal because of that? 
So the Corinthian church, as, as you read about the Corinthian church, and of course, 1 Corinthians was a corrective letter, that they were known as a carnal church, you know, just struggled with sin and, and different things and sin in the church and, and drinking and getting drunk, you know, at the potlucks and then having communion, suing each other, divisions, envies, all this stuff that was going on. So I believe there's something here for us. You see, what does it mean to be carnal, fleshly minded? We know that Jesus, he would talk to his disciples in Matthew chapter 6. And he said, with the Gentiles, they're concerned with nothing more than what they eat and what they drink and what we shall wear. And you see, living carnally minded in the flesh is not just synonymous with some notorious sin, as we talked about last time taking drugs and drinking and living immoral, whatever. To be carnally minded simply means that you are given priority to thinking about the things of the flesh. How can I be gratified in the flesh? How can I satisfy my lust? Entertain those carnal thoughts and fantasies. You're thinking, I want more of this. What new thing can I enjoy that's going to bring me happiness and, and fulfill me? Uh, I live for the material. So Paul here gives us a very easy way to determine if we are walking in the spirit or we're being dictated by the flesh, walking in the flesh. And that is, where is your mind? The mind is the strategic battleground where the flesh and the spirit battle, verse 5 declares to us. When God created us, when he created you and me, he created us body, soul, and spirit. Now the body, flesh and bone, this, not very impressive. The spirit is the deepest part of you, the real you. It lives on in eternity. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. When you take your last breath, when this body dies, you'll go on to be with Jesus. Eventually, at the rapture of the church, you're going to get a new resurrected body. But our spirit lives on. It goes on to be with Jesus till it's reunited with the new body. Now, the soul is the mind, your emotions. When Adam sinned in the garden, as we read in Romans chapter 5, it brought to us sin and death again. Before Adam sinned, there was this beautiful connection between the spirit of God in the spirit of man. Adam eats of the forbidden fruit. Again, by way of review, Romans chapter 5, verse 12, through one man, Adam, sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men. So our bodies will die. But also the flesh assumed dominance over the spirit. In other words, we're, we're born with the sin nature. Our flesh is weak and prone to sin. Man becomes fleshly, carnal. The carnal mind is that enmity against God. Now, God's intention is that the spirit will rule over our, our flesh. That cannot happen if you're not born again by the spirit of God. But as we are new creatures in Christ, as we're born again, if we allow the flesh to reign over the spirit, we find ourselves being bound by sinful patterns. The struggles that Paul described there in Romans chapter 7. And as Paul wrote in the book of Galatians that you have the flesh warring with the spirit and the spirit with the flesh. And in the middle of all of that is your mind, the soul. And the question is this, who and what is going to control your mind? Is it going to be the spirit, my spirit linked to God's spirit? 
I'm going to be walking in the spirit or is it carnality, worldliness? The flesh is going to dictate my mind, control my mind. What are you thinking about throughout the day? What is it that you're desiring? How are you thinking about how I can be pleased in the flesh? How can I be entertained? How can I be satisfied? What possession, you know, uh, will make me happy? What clothes are going to make me look good? And so forth. And we all deal with that to some degree, you know, in our lives, don't we? And as we come to Jesus, submit to Jesus, as I said, born again by the Spirit of God, the Spirit is now to be controlling my mind. We know that we're going to see in this book that he says, renew your mind by the word of God, that you may know what is that good and perfect and acceptable in a will of God. Be a living sacrifice unto him. We are to renew our minds with the Lord, the word of God, living a life that is pleasing to God. But here's the thing. If you and I are not careful, the flesh, it will rear its ugly head again. And it begins to want to dictate our flesh. It begins to want to dictate our lives and dominate us. We begin to think that I'm not satisfied and I'm not fulfilled and I'm going to go out and do my fleshly thing for a while and I'm not connecting with God and now I'm struggling spiritually. And that is a problem if we let the carnal, the flesh, control my mind, in my life, the things, the hobbies, my lusts, the activities. Those things begin to really dictate my life. I think about those things constantly. I want this. I want that. I want him. I want her. I, I want this thing. I want to pursue, you know, whatever. And on and on it goes. And verse 6, listen, I have it underlined in my Bible. To be carnally minded is death. Your spiritual life will take on the stench of death. If you are carnal, the spiritual begins to die. And I think that we can look at a good illustration of that in the Old Testament as we look at the life of Solomon. You know, when Solomon came on the throne, when he was young, the Lord came to Solomon and said, Solomon, what is it that you want? Anything that you want. And Solomon said, I'm young. I don't know my coming in and my going out. I'm here to lead a great nation, your people, and I need you, Lord. I need your wisdom. And the Lord was so pleased with that. They said, Solomon, because you didn't ask anything for yourself, then I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to bless the kingdom. And the kingdom's going to be prosperous. And indeed it was. Solomon reigned during the greatest power and prosperity that Israel ever saw, as most of you know. So as he continued on, he built the first temple. Seven years building the temple. Tens of thousands of workers, you know, working on the temple, overlaid it with gold. It was an absolutely incredible building. And it says that after he dedicated the temple, that he did all that his heart desire was, then all of a sudden you see that Solomon starts to become carnal. He writes the book of Ecclesiastes. Many of you have written the or read the book of Ecclesiastes. He begins to ask, what is life all about? There's nothing new under the sun. And he talks about his wealth. He was ruling during a time where the kingdom was so wealthy that silver became like rocks in Jerusalem. And as he describes that wealth, he ends up saying, it's all vanity. It's all emptiness. 
he begins to talk about his thousand wives and concubines. And as he does, he says, it's all vanity, it's all emptiness. He writes about his intellect. He was a botanist, he was a biologist, he studied trees, plants, and fish, and became very knowledgeable. And he concluded that in the making of many books, there's no end, and much study is wearisome, as he writes. He says it's vanity, it's emptiness. And he says, okay, if it isn't money or if it isn't women, if it isn't intellect, it must be partying. That'll satisfy me. So Solomon brought in exotic animals. The wine was flowing. The daily provision, as you read for Solomon there in, in 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles, was absolutely amazing. All the bulls and the, and the cattle that were butchered to, to feed him and his servants and all the people there and the sheep and all of this. His parties were lavish. It would make those in Hollywood very envious. But Solomon comes to the conclusion that's all vanity. It's all emptiness. Well, maybe it's in power. And he built the most powerful empire as kings and queens came and, and gave gifts to him and paid homage to him. Yet he said, it is vanity. He remained empty. You read the book of Ecclesiastes. That book is a real downer. And listen, this man who wore golden sandals, can you imagine how frustrated and down Solomon must have been? Because he had all the wealth, he had all the power, he had all the women, he had all the smarts, and it's not sin to have money. That's not what is being told to us in Ecclesiastes or in the Scripture. It's not sin to have intellect. So guys, don't go and say, I think I'll quit college tomorrow because, you know, it's just vain and empty. And No, you need your education. You need to continue in that. It's not a sin to have a wife. Now, it is a sin to have multiple wives. But the point is this. You and I, we will get frustrated if we fall into the trap of this thing, that pursuit, will fulfill me and satisfy me in my spirit. I really will be happy and fulfilled and satisfied if I have that new thing or that bigger thing or this amount of money or that wardrobe or whatever. Then I will be happy and we're constantly thinking about those things. But here's the dilemma. Here's the dilemma for Solomon. And it was this. He had it all. He had it all. He was at the top. There was no more power to gain. There was no more wealth to have. There was no more possessions to have. No other woman to pursue. He had it all literally. And he says, I am empty. I am empty. And we see people in our society, don't we? And we don't just see a few, but we see a lot. That they seem to have it all. They have the wealth. They have the prestige, the, the popularity. They seem to have it all. And they live unhappy, miserable lives and weird lives because they're still looking for something in their hearts and in their souls, that satisfaction and fulfillment, and they're empty. And here comes Paul the Apostle, a thousand years later after Solomon, sitting in Corinth, not a dime to his name, lost his power, prestige, and wealth that he had before he became a Christian. He's been beaten. He's been stoned. He's been in prison for the cause of Christ. And he says something here so powerful that I pray that we would come to understand and make it our own. He says it's real simple. 
To be carnally minded is death. And to be spiritually minded is life and peace. And you see, this is written to us. The book of Ecclesiastes was written to show us that you can seem to have it all according to the world and still be empty and miserable and unfulfilled because being carnally minded is death. And what is being declared to us in this chapter is, is you and I, as Christians, we are free from that. And we experience life that abundant life that the Lord has for us to live life the way it was meant to be and having peace and joy. And it comes by being spiritually minded, prioritizing him. And if you try to find, if I try to find life and peace apart from a life that is devoted to the Lord, you will not find it. You won't find it. It's not because Pastor Jeff says so. It's because the word of God declares it. And they say that experience is the best teacher, but it doesn't have to be your experience. And you can look at Solomon's life and you can say, okay, Lord, I get it. What Ecclesiastes says, what Romans chapter 8 declares is so true. So the question that we can ask ourselves this morning, really in the honesty of our hearts, is what has been ruling your soul, your mind? Is it the flesh or is it the spirit? And there is going to be a battle there. But the question is, what do you think about? What is it that you're taking in? The spirit? Then you're going to have life and peace. The flesh? Then your life, your spiritual life, is going to smell of death. And you will never truly be satisfied. And you will come to the conclusion that it is vanity. Listen, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. But remember this. If you are carnally minded, you are living after the flesh and for your flesh... And if you have the mindset, any of us, I will be satisfied and fulfilled. And if I just pursue that thing, this next toy, the next, you know, possession, whatever it might be. That you will be writing down like Solomon did. It is vanity and it's empty over time. And may the Lord help us to understand this. And the reason that I'm parking on this. Is because, number one, I know the stupid seduction of the world. And the world that screams at us that you need to have more. You need to pursue the world and all of this. And I know that, second of all, that this is something that be carnally minded. You focus on the temporary and on the material. And what's in it for me is very popular in the church today. And I pray that we would say, no. That Christianity is not that way. To be carnal. But to show others that the joy and the peace and the true blessing and benefit is that resurrected life that is in me. And I walk in the Spirit because all these things around us that we have is going to go away. And your priority in your life is not carnal. Parents, show this to your kids. Dads, you lead your family that they might seek first the kingdom of God and then all these things will be added unto you. Do your kids see that you bring in the Lord into the decisions that you make when you're thinking we need to get a new this or bigger that or whatever and we're going to take vacations, whatever. There's nothing wrong with those things. But what is the priority in your home? 
in my home. This is for me. What is the priority of our daily lives? And are we and others seeing the blessing and the benefit and the joy? Not because we just have things. Because you have Jesus dwelling in your heart. And you're setting your mind on the things above. For to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. So Father, we thank you for these words that are given to us. These words of truth that resonate in our hearts. And I do pray. And we praise you that there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus today. And Father, I do want to pray for those who may be here that maybe you've never made a decision for Christ. That you see, he came and died for your sins. Because as this book has already declared, as the scriptures declared, that the wages of sin is death, spiritual death. But Jesus came and died for your sins on that cross. He hung between heaven and earth. He bled his, into the ground, his blood, so that you might have forgiveness of sin. As you come in faith and recognize that he is your salvation, that he did the work, he cried out, it is finished. He was put into a grave and he rose again and he conquered sin and death. He proved he's the son of God. He is your salvation. And Jesus, before he went to the cross, he declared that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. You can't save yourself. You can't save yourself in your own goodness. It's not a church. It's not a pastor. It's not belonging to a Christian family. It is you making the decision. It is you Surrendering yourself to him and saying, I need forgiveness. I need to come to the cross. I need to be saved and forgiven. And to put your faith in him. Surrender your life to him. Today is the day of salvation. Will you do that? You can do that right where you are. You can pray, Jesus, I come to you and I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I believe you died on the cross for me. Forgive me. I believe you're alive. You rose from the grave. And Lord, sit upon the throne of my life as my personal Lord and Savior. And I thank you for this new beginning, for a newness of life, that you dwell in my heart, and I want to know you and walk with you. I want to please you with my life, all the days of my life. And I thank you for, the Lord, being born again, bringing life into my heart, truly to my spirit and into my soul. So Lord, help me to live for you. In Jesus' name.